If you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you open up to 1 Chronicles chapter 22. We're going to continue to look at the things that the Chronicler laid out. Keep in mind as we study uh, 1 Chronicles, probably, uh can't say emphatically, but probably the author is Ezra. He definitely is writing to those who are coming out of captivity in Babylon. He's given them a history from a different point of view. We saw the actual history, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Samuel, you know, of all the different kings and all their issues. Now the chronicler, he, he tries to focus their attention on some very specific things. And so it's a little different than a, than a complete history, but it is a lesson to try to encourage those who are coming from a relatively difficult time. Uh, for example, the people he's writing to are all, were all children 70 years earlier. So that makes them all 70 or older. Right? Even the, only the very, very old can even remember what the temple looked like. The temple's gone. And as they come, sometimes when we, people, men and women, when we go through hard times, when we go through difficult issues, when that happens, sometimes what we do is, is we develop an overactive sense of self. And we start thinking about self a lot. Um, it was a pretty big problem at the time uh, that Ezra writes, a pretty big, big problem at the time when Jesus Christ uh, came, wasn't it? If it wasn't such a big problem, Jesus wouldn't have spent so much time dealing with our view of self, our selfishness, uh, the struggles that we have. And what we see in 1 Chronicles 22 through 29, that whole section, I don't know if we'll get through it all tonight, but we'll see how far we go. But that whole section is, if you wanted to give that whole section a, a, some kind of title that's not in your Bible, call it Selflessness. Because 22 through 29 is David amassing and instructing and dividing and preparing for the building of a temple he doesn't get to have anything to do with. The whole thing. The rest of those chapters is all David amassing and preparing and bringing the building stuff. David's gathering, we're going to see some incredible numbers. We'll talk about those when we get to them. David's amassing all these things so that the temple can be built. And he divides the Levites and he divides the priests and he organizes the, the worshipers and the musicians and he organizes the way that's all going to be structured for a temple that doesn't exist that he'll never get to build nor see. But the last part of his life, that's his whole focus. He is preparing everybody who gets to see it for the opportunity to serve God in it. And he keeps on doing it. Even though his heart's desire was to build this thing for God. His heart's desire is to be able to, in some way, exalt the the understanding of all the people who are on the outside watching, that they could understand how great uh, Yehovah is, how wonderful Yahweh is. And so he wants to build this incredible temple and put all this work into it. But God told him no. And he didn't pout, and he didn't whine, and he didn't complain about what he didn't get to do. Instead, he did what he could. And 22 through 29 is him doing what he can. All the way through these chapters, we're going to see a, a variety of things. that David is preparing. Everywhere, 22 through 29, David is preparing for the building of the temple. Providing the children of Israel for a place to worship. Giving opportunity, really, in and through it all, to glorify the name of the Lord. And to have a chance to glorify God was all David really needed. In chapter 22, it says, Then David said, This is the house of the Lord God, and this is the altar of the burnt offering of Israel. Now last time we saw David numbered the people. Remember we talked about perhaps that was David's greatest sin. For example, 70,000 people died as a result of that sin, of that mistake that he made. 
And he came to the, to the threshing floor there where the temple mount would be. And it was at that place they offered and they prayed and they saw the angel of the Lord sheath his sword, put his sword away. And while David's standing there and the angel sheaths his sword and, and the, the pestilence stops, the disease stops that was running through the city, as he's standing up there, he says, this is where we'll put the temple and this is where we'll put the altar of sacrifice, the, the burnt offering, the bronze altar. Probably the altar is going right on the spot where he built that altar and offered the offering. You remember he offered an offering and fire came from heaven and took it. God accepted the offering and the attitude of David as he came before the Lord in an attitude of repentance. God stopped his judgment. God came down and snatched up the sacrifice. So David says, this is going to be the place. I want you to think about it. God's going to use... David's two greatest sins to become the nation's greatest blessing. Isn't he? The sin of numbering the people, that's how they got the temple mount and the place where the temple and the bronze altar were to go. Who's going to build the temple? Solomon. Who's Solomon's mom? Bathsheba. That's that other sin people remember so much about David, right? One of the things that God's Word declares to us, not that God will overlook our sins, but if we allow Him, God will use those failures and struggles and issues in our life to become a blessing to someone else, if we'll let Him. And David had that right attitude. We see God using those things to become uh, the nation's greatest blessing. The, The building and the placement of the temple are a result of those two failures of David. The scripture tells us, for we know all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. A lot of people misquote that verse and try to make it say everything that happens, um, good's going to come out of it. That's not necessarily what that verse says. It says, for we know, we, all things work together for those who love God and are definite article is there are the called according to God's purposes so God is saying his people believers those who trust in the Lord he said I will use everything failure and victory to be for your good and God's glory that's a promise take it to the bank it's for real And that's what we see happening in David's life. Now, it goes on, it says in verse 2, So David commanded to gather the aliens who were in the land. A word for aliens, it simply means the foreigners. These are the people from the different nations around him throughout Canaan that they had conquered. And they were the workforce and uh, slaves. Keep in mind, when we talk about slaves in Judaism, slaves in Judaism got paid. So a slave in Judaism is pretty similar to our normal everyday life. Okay, you can pretend you're not a slave. There's a couple here who probably aren't a slave, but the rest of us, we got to go work. And no choice. We got to get it done. We got stuff we got to pay. We got things we got to take care of. It's the same thing there. These people were conquered. And as a result, they were slaves. But God demanded through his law that slaves be justly treated. And that's one of the things that we see. So David gathers them who were in the land of Israel, and he appointed masons to cut hewn stones to build the house of God. David doesn't get to build the house. But he doesn't just sit around and pout and say, well, there's nothing I can do then. He does what he can. What can he do? They start to cut the stones. If you ever get a chance to go to Israel and see the foundation... All you can see anymore is the foundation of the, of the wall that leveled off the temple mount where they could build. But the stones that they used to level off the temple mount, some of those stones are 500 tons and in excess. That's a lot of weight, by the way. And they didn't have no crane operator to pull up and move it. So they moved it. Sometimes you just got to want to do it. Are you aware of that? See, there's a whole lot of people who spend a lot of time saying, well, how are we going to do that? 
And then there's a whole lot of other people who will just want to get it done, so they'll get it done. That's the difference. They wanted to get it done, they got it done. They moved it. They moved it. So, they hewn the stones. He can't put them in place. He's not going to set them. But he's just piling stones. So that they're ready. So when the day comes to build, all they got to do is go grab a stone and put it in its spot. That's how important it was to David to glorify God. Uh, Hopefully we can grasp the concept. Because the temple's a lot of things. It means a lot of things to a lot of people. But to David... Remember, we've been talking about the idea, Middle Eastern concept. They built huge temples that were to honor their God. And all the pagans had them. Okay? All the pagans. Now, God never said he needed them. God never told him to build it. But David saw all these things and he said, all those, all those temples are lies. Man, we conquered all those people. Those gods are nothing. The, Yehovah, He is God, and I want everyone to see His glory. I want everyone to see His magnificence. I want everyone to see His beauty. That was the motivation behind David building the temple. That's why the Bible calls him a man after God's own heart. The question is, is that our attitude? I want everyone to see the glory of God in me. The majesty of God. The beauty of God. The love of God. You go on with His attributes as far as you want to go. Do you want to see God reflected in your life so that other people see it? That was David's heart. He wanted it so bad, even though he couldn't be the man. He made sure all the stones got cut. When they cut all those stones, they made a quarry. The place where they made that quarry and they brought the stones because there was not going to be the sound of a hammer and a chisel on the stones that were cut for the temple. So it's a quarry up there on the top of Mount Moriah. They cut this notch out of Mount Moriah. When they did it, it's kind of interesting because when they did it, one half of it started to look like a face. And whenever they needed to stone somebody, where do you think they went? What a quarry yard. Why would they go to the quarry yard? There's stones there. Now, there's lots of stones everywhere in Israel, so don't get me wrong. You could really find a stone just about any given day. However, the common place was to go to this place where the quarry was, where they had carved out all these stones, and it had this look of a face on one side. And they started to call that place the place of the skull. And it got the name Golgotha. And somebody we know was crucified there. Right? The stone that the builders rejected in the same place where the stones were cut. Where it was, where it was put together. David, as, as he's doing all these things, as he's preparing, man, I, I just love to see his heart. Look at verse 3. David prepared iron in abundance for the nails uh, of the doors of the gates and for the joints, and bronze in abundance beyond measure. Okay, iron was really hard to get. Most of the weapons in, the, in their armies at this time were made out of bronze. Bronze was abundant. Bronze is soft. Right? We all on the same page? So if you got in a fight with a bronze sword and somebody had an iron sword and you hit, you're going to lose. Iron was not as abundant. But David gathered it. So much iron, later on he's going to say... We can't even measure how much we have. It wasn't for weapons. It was for hinges on the doors and the gates of the temple. Bronze beyond beyond measure, he says. Not even able to measure it. Verse 4, cedar trees in abundance. For the Sidonians and those from Tyre brought much cedar wood to David. Tyre and Sidon were two places where they... The cedar wood that they used in temples all around the Middle East came from that place. Some of the other ta- uh, uh, temples that they've that they've uh, dug up, archaeologists have gone in and they've seen the stamp from Tyre and Sidon that it all came from there. Same, they gave it to David, sent it to him. So not only does he have stones cut, not only does he have all the iron, not only does he have all the bronze, and he's got all the cedar wood. 
And he's just storing it, piling it up, getting it ready. Getting it ready for uh, when his son will be able to build it. Verse 5 says, Now David said, Solomon, my, my son, is young and inexperienced. And the house to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent, famous, and glorious throughout all countries. You guys get the idea? He is. He wants it to be so glorious. He wants everyone to be able to see the beauty and the majesty and the amazing attitude of who God is by what He builds. That's His heart. His heart is not so everyone will think we're a great country because look at what we got. No, He wants everyone to think how awesome God is. How amazing God is. The things He did were not always perfect. But the attitude of his heart was to honor and glorify God. That's why David would write incredible things like the fear of God and the beginning of wisdom. He tells us in the Psalms that the fear of God is worship. Some interesting concepts, no? Having a right understanding of who God is and His glory and His majesty and His amazing attributes. Having a right understanding. Not a, an understanding that's too far right or too far left, but having that solid fear of the Lord. Man, what an amazing thing. What an amazing place to come from. So He wants the temple to represent everything that God is. His sovereignty. His authority. His majesty. And so he, he's bringing it all together. He says, Solomon's young and inexperienced. You can get any, a variety of different numbers, but somewhere around 12. How many of you would turn over the building of the temple to a 12-year-old? Or would you say, oh, my son's a little inexperienced. So I'm going to get all this stuff together for him. He was excited to get to, to, to be a part. So what do we see? Selflessness. And what else? The willingness to get everything else ready. To prepare everything so that when God says it's the day, that God would be glorified. Nobody's going to know David's name. They're going to call the temple the temple of who? Solomon's temple. Isn't that what they're going to call it? Nobody's going to call it David's temple. David's name's not ever going to go together with the temple. But God is going to be magnified and glorified. And that's what David wants. He don't care about himself. He don't care about what he gets or what he, he, he says. So it says, so David made abundant preparations before his death. Abundant preparations. He never got tired of being a part of things, even if it wasn't for him. Do you get it? Even if it wasn't about him. Even if his first thought wasn't, well, how's this going to affect me? Is that our thought sometimes? Sometimes we're overcome by emotion and we, like others, can come to Jesus and we say, Oh, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. And we get surprised at his answer to us. Right on. I don't have anywhere to lay my head. You willing to leave your house? Lord, I'll go with you wherever you go. Just let me go back. Say goodbye to my family. No. If you're coming, come. Are you willing to leave your family? Oh, Lord, just let me go back and bury my father. Let the dead bury the dead. You come and follow me. Those are pretty challenging statements, aren't they? Every one of those statements, guys, every one of those statements is a call for us to say, it's not about me. It's not about me. Am I in this for the glory of the Lord? Am I in this because I want to honor His name? Or do, am I just trying to add him to my life? Do you get the difference? Really, God's not interested in just being added to your already busy life. He wants it. He wants it all. 
Every bit of it. Look, hold your uh, finger there. We'll be right back to that. Let's, let's, uh, I wasn't going to do this, but now I am, so have fun. Let's uh, turn to the right quite a ways. We're going to go to Luke. <laughs> let's go look at Luke 14. Luke chapter 14. And we're going to look at a few verses and... If I, if I do this too long, we'll never get to chapter 29 of First Chronicles, just so you know. Okay, it's, it's, we're doomed already, is that what you're saying? Luke 14, verse 1. We'll try to go fast, but listen. Now what happened is he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath. That They watched him closely. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. Dropsy, swelling, uh, like edema. Um, it's a problem with a heart or liver, and it causes swelling in the hands, the feet, the different parts of the body. So this guy has dropsy. And Jesus, answering, spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees and said, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So Jesus sees him. He's invited to the Pharisees to eat. And the Pharisees, as they're all gathering to eat, they see a man with dropsy. A man in need of healing. So he looks, Jesus looks to the Pharisees, and he says to the Pharisees, what do you guys say? Is it lawful for me to heal? Is it okay to heal on the Sabbath day? And says, they kept silent. They didn't say a word. So, Jesus took him and healed him. Healed him of his dropsy, and let him go. And he answered them and said, which of you... Having a donkey or an ox that fell into a pit would not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day. So he says, he looks at me, he questions their selfishness, right? Their selfish motives. They're looking and probably looking down on the fact that why would you heal today? It's a, it's a day of rest, no healing done on this day. Oh, of course, they can't heal, so that's why it's so easy for them to, to give that out. But, but no healing on this day. But if I go home and my mule is in a pit, That's my mule. This affects my life. I'll get in the pit and take the mule out. All Jesus is saying is, you do this for your mule, and all the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And this guy with dropsy belongs to me. So, he healed him. Then he told him two parables. We'll look at those parables just quickly. Dealing with that same concept. Selfishness or selflessness. Their attitudes were, well, you know, if it doesn't affect me, let's just make sure that doesn't happen. Their view, their thought of Sabbath was not on glorifying God. It was on glorifying themselves. Making themselves look good. So, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the best places. What is that? More selfishness. They came to the table and they chose the best places to sit, right? The most important seats. Look, you and I maybe don't, this don't, doesn't relate to us, but Middle Eastern culture, that each seat was a, was a level of honor. The closer to the guest you got, the more honor you had. The further away from the guy who, who invited you, the, the less. You with me? So these guys are all picking seats higher up, you know, trying to elevate themselves by where they sit. So, this is what he said to them. When you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you is invited by him. And he who invited you comes to you and says, give place to this man, and then you begin with shame to take the lower place. So Jesus said, when you are invited, go sit in the lowest place. So that when he who invited you comes, that he might say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So what's Jesus' first, his first lesson to those who were there, right? Who were invited, humble yourselves and let yourselves be exalted by the Lord rather than exalting yourselves and making God come in lower you. That was the attitude of all of them, wasn't it? They all thought themselves better than that man with dropsy. That man with dropsy, he's, 
he's broken, something's wrong with him, God hates him, because obviously if God loved him, he wouldn't be sick, right? So Jesus said, humble yourselves. Don't think of yourselves first. Think of yourselves last. Put yourself in the lowest place, and perhaps you will be lifted up. Then he talks to the guy who had the party. So he also, in verse 12, said to him who invited him, When you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. He says, hey, don't invite the guys who who can pay you back and who can do all these honorable things for you. Don't do that. What's he tell them to do? Look what he says. He says, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. The poor, the lame, the maimed, and the blind. All those guys are unclean. A Pharisee would not be caught dead near them. But Jesus said, you invite them because they can't pay you back. When you do something, do it to those who cannot pay you back. Who can't be a part of all that stuff. He says, you will be blessed because they can't repay you and you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. You'll receive treasures in heaven, so to speak. So Jesus, speaking of their selfishness, he's got a lot of challenging things to say, but he goes on. And a certain man gave a great supper and invited many. Now he's talking still in the same place. And sent his servant at supper to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. But they, with one accord, began to make excuses. The first one said, I bought a piece of property. I must go and see it. I can't come. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen. I got to go test them. I can't come. Still another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. What are the three excuses of the three people who said they would not come to the master's feast? My stuff. You could say my property my equipment, and my family. Now you look again at the cost of discipleship where Jesus talked to those guys who said they were going to follow him. And what was he asking them to be willing to leave behind? Your stuff, your equipment, your family. He asked for those things. In, where is it, Luke 18? When the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what do I got to do to be saved? And Jesus said, do these things. Do these, fulfill the commandments. You know them. He said, oh, I've done those since my youth. We all all know the story, right? Jesus then said, well, one thing you lack, take all your possessions, sell them, give them to the poor. And come and follow me. The man asked what he needed to do to be saved. Jesus told him, sell everything you got. What's another way of saying that? Forsake all. Come and follow me. Lay it all down. Come and follow me. But the rich young ruler went away how? Sorrowful. Why? Because he had an abundance of stuff. And then Jesus shocked the disciples. And he said, you know, truly, it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And everybody listened and knew what he meant. So they responded. The disciples said, well, who then can be saved? And what did Jesus say? With men it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Who does the saving? God does. And we all in the United States of America should be thankful that he said that. Because the poorest of us is richer than most of the world. So I'm thankful for that. But then Peter piped up. And he said, well, Lord, we left everything. We left our boats and we left our families and we left our homes. We left all that stuff. And Jesus said, no man who follows me and gives up home and mother and father and family and stuff. Nobody who does that will not receive many times more in this life and in the life to come eternal life. What's Jesus want? He wants us all. All of us. I mean, our entire being. He doesn't want to be shut out of our finances. He doesn't want to be shut out of our family time. He doesn't want to be shut out of anything. He wants it all. That's why he says, I want it all, everything. 
Are you willing to leave it all behind? Like Abraham, whatever God asks you, could you lay it on the altar? Right? Just like Abraham, whatever God asks you for, could you lay it on the altar? What did God ask David for? The temple. I don't want you to build it. So what did David do? He laid it on the altar. And he started to pile stuff up. He was willing still to be a part, even though it wasn't for him. Even though it wasn't going to affect him. Even though he couldn't be a part of it. He still made it his life mission. The end of his reign to gather all the things together. To put them all together for Solomon, his son. First he brings all the building blocks. So we see him preparing the ground. Okay, Then when we come uh, to verse 7, you see him preparing his son for what God wanted to do. See, it wasn't just the stuff. He starts preparing people. Look what it says. So David said to Solomon, My son, as for me, it is in my mind to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me saying, You have shed much blood and have made great wars. You shall not build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth and in my sight. He was a man of war. And God wanted the one who built his temple to be a man of peace. David was a man of war. That was his role for the Lord. That was God's plan for his life, wasn't it? But that plan for his life meant you don't get to be the, the, the guy who builds the temple. That'll be your son. What was his son's name? Solomon. What's Solomon mean? Peace. Peace. God is peace, some people say, but peace is definitely a part of the name. Man of peace. Uh, his name in the Hebrew is Shelamo. 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 Man of peace, or God is peace. The point is, he's God's choice. In verse 9, David tells his son that, Behold, the son will be born to you who will be a man of rest. That word, same as peace. A man of shalom. He'll be a peaceful man. And that peaceful man, and I will give him rest from all his enemies all around, and his name shall be Solomon. For I will give peace and quietness to Israel in his days. That's what his name means. Peace and quietness in his day. A man of peace, not a man of war. And he'll build a house for my name. And look what God says, and he will be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. So David's telling his son the the prophecies, what the word said, what God was going to accomplish in his son's life. And then he gives him this word of preparation. Now, my son, may the Lord be with you. Number one most important thing we can ever leave with our children. Way more important than Education. (laughs) Some interesting concepts about that. But I I won't go into them. That's a rabbit trail we'll save for another day. Most important thing you give to your children is the fact that the Lord is with them. More important than whether or not they can conjugate a sentence. Or they can work a figure in algebra. Or that they graduate from Berkeley or Yale, or Harvard, or whatever dream place you think your kids ought to graduate from. Maybe Moody Bible Institute. Doesn't make any difference. More important than all those things is one thing. And nothing absolves us of our responsibility. A lot of talk lately about people trying to do... School, public school, homeschool, no Sunday school, yes Sunday school, oh, let's stop all that stuff. Look, it don't matter what you do, please hear me, it don't matter what we do, if we had the greatest Sunday school on the face of the earth, it doesn't absolve a parent from teaching their children about the Lord. So, in a lot of ways, I don't understand the argument. Fathers, teach your children. That's what the Word says. Period. 
your job. Not the church's job, not the school system's job, not your wife's job, not your grandma's job. Your job. Teach them. Teach them that the Lord will be with them. Most important thing. Isn't that what we desire? I mean, the one thing, I, you know, I don't care how much money my kids got. I don't care how healthy my kids are. The one thing I want to know, they're walking with the Lord. God is with them. David said to his son, may the Lord be with you. May the Lord be with you. Why? Because that's what's going to prosper Solomon. Right? It's not going to be Solomon that prospers Solomon. Who's going to prosper him? The Lord. Isn't that what happened? Yep, that's what happened. And may he build the house, or may you build the house of the Lord your God, as he has said to you. May you be able to accomplish these things. Look what he says next. Only, only may the Lord give you wisdom and understanding. Who gave it to him? The Lord. The Lord gives it to him. Nothing absolves us of that responsibility to teach our children, to raise them up. When they lie down, when they rise up, when they eat. There were, there were feast days, right? In Israel, what were those feast days for? To have a big party? An excuse to eat a big meal? What was it for? To teach their children about the things God had done for them. That was the whole point. That why, that's why there was a Passover. That's why there was a Feast of Weeks. That's why there was the Feast of Lights. That's why there was all the different feasts that they, that they had. The Feast of Trumpets. And on and on and on. So that they could teach them about the Lord. Who gives your children wisdom and understanding? The Lord does. May the Lord give you wisdom and understanding. And give you charge concerning Israel. To what purpose? So that you'll have a great career? What's the purpose? That you would keep the law of the Lord your God. Right? That you would keep the law. What's the word keep? The word keep is the same as the word treasure. Does God's word matter to you? Does the law of God matter to you? Does God's opinion about things matter to you? Does where God fits in your life matter to you? That's what it means to keep the law of God. That you treasure it. Thy word, the psalmist said, I have what? In where? My heart. That I might not sin against you. The whole concept is the same. I treasured it. Made it a part of my life. And that keeps me from sin. That's the most important thing. That's the most important thing. Then he says in verse 13. Then you will prosper. Then you will prosper when? If you take care to fulfill the statutes and judgments. With which the Lord charged Moses concerning Israel. That's the law. If, then, if you walk with the Lord, that's why we're supposed to teach them. If you walk with the Lord, then you will experience the presence of God in your life. And He will prosper you. And He will take care of you. And He will be everything you need. That's the most important thing we could ever give to our children. And that's what David is speaking to his son about right now. And then he says, Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be dismayed. We've seen that before, haven't we? Moses and Joshua and throughout the Old Testament, now David and Solomon. Don't be afraid. Be of good courage. Stand. Indeed, he says, I have taken much trouble to prepare for the house of the Lord. David says, I have amassed everything you need. Listen. 100,000 talents of gold. Do you remember what I told you the weight of a talent was? Between 75 and 125 pounds. Listen. 100,000 talents of gold. That's a lot of gold. Now Solomon's going to amass so much gold in his time they don't even count it. So it had to be more than this. But this is a lot. How much silver? One million talents of silver. 
and of bronze and iron beyond measure. So that was too much to count. For it is so abundant. I have prepared timber and stone also, and you may add to them. Listen, David says, look, this doesn't have to be the end of it. You keep adding to it, because we want this to be magnificent. Moreover, David says, there are workmen with you in abundance, woodsmen, stonecutters, all types of skillful men, for every kind of work of gold and silver and bronze and iron, there is no limit. Arise and begin working, and the Lord be with you. David encouraging Solomon. Walk with God. Preparing Solomon for what God has before him. But David's not done. He prepared the land. He prepared the materials. He prepared his son. But he's not done. Then David prepares his leaders. The leadership of the nation. David also commanded all the leaders of Israel to help Solomon his son, saying, Is not the Lord your God with you, and has he not given you rest on every side? For he has given the inhabitants of the land into my hand, and the land is subdued before the Lord and before his people. So what are they to do? Set your heart and your soul to seek the Lord your God. That's what he told the leaders. Prepared his leaders, he said, set your heart to seek the Lord your God. Who's this being written to? The guys coming out of Babylon. Do you remember what Jeremiah gave them the day they went to Babylon? Remember I told you the story how when they were conquered, there was no more family unit. The men are over there. Women are over there. The children are here. Everybody's going to some role within the the kingdom of Babylon. Family units torn apart. Everybody's in chains. They're going to go be assimilated into this other kingdom, the kingdom of Babylon. And as they're in chains, and they're weeping, and they're wailing, because you would be, wouldn't you? If you're in that line over there, and you have no idea where your kid is, or you don't know where your wife is, or you don't know what happened to your family, you don't even know if they're alive. That ever happened in history before? Yeah, it wasn't all that long ago. Well, Hitler did the same thing to the Jews, didn't he? Oh, yeah, he did. Anyway, they're all in chain, ready to go. But Jeremiah the prophet has a word for the people. And he comes to them as they're weeping and crying and wailing. He writes out this letter to be read to the people. And God said to them, I know the thoughts I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of good, not of evil. I'm not here to destroy you. I'm here to give you a future and a hope. He tells them, you're going to go to a faraway land. But when you get there, through the prophet, God says, make a life. Make a family. Have children. Plant and sow and reap. Live your life there in peace. And God says, I will bring you back to this land again. He says, I'll bring you back and you will seek me and you will find me. When? When you seek me with your whole heart. God says, I don't just want to be a part of your life. What was the problem with with Israel? They added God to their life. They had all these other gods to worship and all these other busy things in life and all this other stuff. And they said, well, I got a corner in my life for you, God. I give you this little corner and, and I'll show up and worship you on the Sabbath and we'll do the Sabbath thing. But, you know, after the Sabbath's over, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you know, that's about making a living and, and serving all these other gods and worshiping all this other stuff. But don't you worry, God, I'll come back to you on Saturday again. And God said, I don't want it. I don't want it. I want it all. I want all of you. Every closet, every corner. Jesus said the same thing. I don't just want a piece of you. I want it all. I want everything. 
when he called the disciples, when he came to those disciples and he said to them, still some of the most amazing stuff I ever read. Isn't it amazing to you? When Jesus stands to the disciples and says, come follow me, and they leave it and come? That's, that's amazing, isn't it? I mean, that, what a glorious thing that is. You know Jesus is saying the same thing to us? Come on. Come on. i got so much for you. But I can't do it if all you give me is this, is this little closet. I need all of you. So forsake it all. Renounce everything. Just leave it behind and come to me. And, and, and I'll give you, I'll direct you, I'll lead you. Just let me be your everything. Just like it was everything for David, right? God was everything for David. He, he puts all this stuff together. He tells his leaders, you got to make sure you set your mind on seeking the Lord. What does the Bible tell us? Do not be conformed to the image of this world, but what? Be transformed by? By the renewing of your mind. So that's sort of like setting your mind, right? To seek the Lord. Isn't that the same thing? By the renewing of your mind. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 tells us what renewing the mind's all about, right? What's it say? Let the mind of Christ, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus our Lord, who being the very form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself, he humbled himself, he made himself as low as you could make yourself from Almighty God. Didn't he? Isn't that what Jesus said in the story about choose the lowest place? And then who did he invite? But the blind and the lame and the maimed, the sinners. So that was the view of the people. Everybody who was sick, everybody who was hurting, everybody who had problems, those were sinners. Jesus said, that's what I came for. If you don't know that's who you are, (laughs) you're going to miss the boat. You're going to miss the boat. That's, That's Jesus calling them the heart to be complete total whole life is about glorifying the lord that's what he's looking for that's what he's looking for from you and i look that's the key for us to be free free of the bondage we have and maybe you you're in bondage i'm I'm in bondage to sarcasm i'm trying to get free if i'm gonna get free of bondage to sarcasm how am i gonna do it i'm gonna do it by making the lord everything in my life what if I'm in bondage to alcohol? What if I'm in bondage to drugs? What if I'm in bondage to pornography? What if I'm in bondage to something else? Is the cure different? It's the same. You give it all to Him. Every lock, stock, and barrel, every corner, every place, every spot. You seek Him with your whole heart. You set your mind on Him. Don't be conformed into this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove what is good and acceptable will of God. Man, that's what God is looking for from us. That's what we see David doing here. It's not about him. He's preparing everybody else, man. He says, Therefore arise and build the sanctuary of the Lord God to bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord and the holy articles of God into the house that is to be built for the name of the Lord. You guys thought I was never going to get through that chapter, huh? What was the, the, the ark represented? The presence of God. Bring the presence of God right into our midst. Isn't that what we want? Don't you want the presence of God in your workplace? Don't you want the presence of, presence of God in your family time? Don't you want the presence of God in all aspects of your life? Because that's what, we're, that's what this is all about. That's what he's instructing them. Build the glory of God, the majesty of God. Let it be big and and auspicious and let it stand out so that everybody can see it. That's what he's talking about, man. He's excited to see this glory of God being revealed. In chapter 23, he's not done. Now he prepares the Levites. The Levites. He says to the Levites, So David was old and full of days. He made his son Solomon king over Israel. And he gathered together all the leaders of Israel with the priests and the Levites. Now the Levites were numbered from the age of 30 and above. And the number of individual males was 38,000. Now, be a lot of numbers and we're going to go kind of quick. 
through the next couple of chapters. But as we do, here's what I want you to hear. The Levites were numbered from 30 years old. Initially, the, the service of a Levite, who was uh, people who functioned as the priesthood, they came in of age to serve at 25 years old. From 25 to 30, according to numbers, from 25 to 30, they were trained. They served and in the Levitical priesthood from 30 to 50. At 50, they retired and became the teachers of those who were 25. You guys with me? So they were wrote, there was a constant rotation. Constant rotation. They would serve 20 years and then they became the teachers of the next generation. And on and on it perpetuates, right? On and on it perpetuates. That was the, the division that, that numbers had laid out for us. So it says, of these, of these 38,000, 24,000 were to look after the work of the house of the Lord. So 24,000 are, are the, to maintain the temple. 24,000 maintain the temple. You know, when you build the temple, it's amazing things break. Does that shock you? Most of us who have homes, have we discovered that things break? And have you noticed when things break, nobody did it? I always loved that. Nobody or I don't know. Those two guys, nobody and I don't know, they are always in trouble. Who broke this? I don't know. But I don't know. Nobody. Really. Wow, that door come clean off the hinges. And nobody done it. It's a case of spontaneous combustion on the door. A miracle. Those things happen in the homes. They happen in the temple too. Things were broke. 24,000 took care of it. Then he says 6,000 are going to be officers and judges. So 6,000 are going to be used for leading. Leading the Levites. Then what's left over, 4,000 are going to be gatekeepers. That means 4,000 of the guys, the 38,000, are going to open the doors. Open and close the doors. Open and close the doors. Open and close the doors. They're the greeters. The ones who let you in. The ones who let you out. 4,000 guys are going to do that. And 4,000 guys are going to be worship leaders. So David divides up all the guys and says, here's how we're going to do it. 24,000 will be in maintenance. 6,000 of you are going to be leaders. 4,000 of you are going to take care of the doors. 4,000 of you are going to be the worship team. What they're going to do is divide all those into a a variety of courses. In every case, let me tell you why this is important. In every case, make sure you understand why this is important. In every single case, whether it's priests, Levites, worship guys, David's going to divide them into, can you guess how many groups? 24. Every time. He's going to divide the priests into 24 divisions or courses. He's going to divide the worship leaders into 24 divisions. He's going to divide the Levites into 24 divisions. You know, later on when people come to the book of Revelation and they read about the 24 elders, they're all amazed. 24, where in the world did that number come from? Well, did you read the rest of the Bible? It's kind of important before you read the last book, right? When you guys go buy a book, do you just read the last chapter first? My mom used to do that. That's how she decided whether or not she was going to read the book. If she didn't like the ending, she didn't read the beginning. Man, that is a horrible way to live life. So, if we're going to understand the last book, we've got to understand the books who went before us. 24 elders. 24 elders. People come up with all these crazy ideas. All 24 elders are the angels. Where in the world do we see God dividing the angels in 24 divisions? Nowhere. So why do we call them the angels? Well, because we don't like the other possibilities. We don't like the other possibilities are even worse than that. They've got to be the angels. Well, there's just one problem. And see, in the book of Revelation, they will list together the 24 elders and the angels. And the 24 elders and the angels sang. That's kind of redundant, isn't it? If it's angels and angels singing, why not just say, and the angels sang? But they say 24 elders and the angels. 24 elders. David divided the priesthood. 
He divided the Levites. He divided God's portion. He divided the people who were dedicated to God into 24 courses. And he divided them all, no matter what group they were, into 24 courses. And we read about it in Chronicles. So what am I saying? The 24 elders? Who are the 24 elders? The 24 elders are the bride. They're God's people. They're the priesthood. What's it say in First Peter? We are a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Whew. Just like the priests in the Old Testament. And, and they're called 24 because David divided the priesthood into how many? 24. Oh, interesting, huh? Do you think it's just random? Oh, we should just throw that stuff out. Throw out everything in the first chapter and let's just make up something new for the last one? I don't think so. 24 elders. You know what happens if you make the 24 elders the bride of Christ? You know what happens if you make the 24 elders the church? I'll tell you, but you may not like it. It means the church is in heaven in chapter 4 of Revelation. Uh, but I'm a mid-trib guy. Well, then you're going to have to make the elders something else, aren't you? Right? Because if I'm mid-trib and the elders are in heaven in chapter 4, that's a problem for me. So I have to make them something else. Maybe angels. Maybe I'll just say we don't really know who they are. But I think I know who they are. They're a royal priesthood. They're a holy nation. They're people set apart by God, divided into 24 courses called the 24 elders. Just like David did here. In these chapters, we're going to go through really fast. Because you guys would say, oh my gosh, if he reads another number or five more names in a row and makes us listen to every single verse, I'm not ever coming back on a Wednesday again. So I'll go a little faster, but I want you to understand the importance behind it because that's foundational. There's some foundational issues there. There's some, you'll come. That's good. Thanks, knowing. You and me will have plenty of cookies, won't we? So David divides them. So I, I, I kind of just want you guys to see that, okay? Here the Levites are going to be divided into three main groups. The Gershonites, the Kohathites, and the Merariites. You see it in verse 6. Those three groups are the guys responsible for moving the different parts of the tabernacle. In the Old Testament, they're going to have different responsibility now under the temple. And you're going to see a list of names. Now for you and I, all these names are probably less important. What's the value of all these names that we go through uh, to verse 23? The people coming out of Babylon, this is how they know whether or not they're Levites. Do you get it? What would it be like not to know where you come from? You were three years old when you went into captivity. Now you're 73. Are you a Levite? Are you the family of Reuben? Are you of Simeon? Are you of Judah? Kind of important to have that genealogy then, right? Because you know where you fit. Where do I fit in my world? That's what this genealogy told them. So it lays out all the different people for those three families. All of Levite comes from those three, the Gershonites, the Kohathites, and the Merarites. In verse 24, it says, These are the sons of Levi by their father's houses, the heads of the father's houses, as they were counted individually, by the number of their names, who did the work for the service of the house of the Lord from the age of 20 years and above. So remember, before it was 30. What happened? David lowered the age. Before, you would come into training at 25 and you began serving at 30. David lowered it to 20. So you would come into training at 15. You would train until 20. From 20 to 50, you served. That gave a greater labor force to David and the priesthood in order to function the work of the temple. You ever wonder how they did all that stuff at the temple when people say at the time of Christ, a million people came into Jerusalem for Passover? Each group of ten had to have their own sacrifice. You ever figure out how many sacrifices that is? That's a busy day, isn't it? You're going to have to have a big labor force. David, understanding some of those principles, he lowered the age that raised his labor force. For David said, The Lord God of Israel has given rest to His people that they may dwell in Jerusalem forever. And also to the Levites. They will no longer carry the tabernacle so or the articles for its service. For by the last words of David, the Levites were numbered from 20 years old and above because their duty was to help the sons of Aaron in the service of the house of the Lord. 
And in the courts and the chambers they purify the holy things and the work of the service of the house of God, both with the showbread and the fine flour of the grain offering and the unleavened cakes and what is baked in the pan and what is mixed in all kinds of measures and sizes, to stand every single morning to thank and praise the Lord and likewise at evening. So then pray, they praised every morning and evening. Worship teams had a lot to do. Those 4,000 divided into 24 different courses. Man, each one of those guys had a lot to do. Every morning there was a worship service. Every evening there was a worship service. Seven days a week. But you know, there's just too much stuff going on at church. They always got something happening. There's always another event. There's always... Well, at least we don't do that. Every morning and evening. I'll see you tomorrow at 6. And tomorrow night, well, let's say seven. Every morning and evening began with worship, ended with worship. And at every presentation of the burnt offering of the Lord and the Sabbath, every Sabbath, how many Sabbaths in a month? At least four of those, right? Oh, and every new moon. So every time there was a new moon, and every set feast, and every set feast came with its own Sabbath. It wasn't on a Saturday. So that's an extra Sabbath. And uh, by number of accordance, according to the ordinance of the governing them regularly before the Lord, that they should uh, attend to the needs of the tabernacle of meeting and the needs of the holy place and the needs of the sons of Aaron and the brethren and the work of the house of the Lord. So David, he don't even get to build this. He don't get to spend one time. And he's organizing the whole labor force and the priesthood, dividing their courses, telling them, you guys are going to be the worship guys, and you guys are going to be the maintenance guys, and you guys are going to be taking care of the, the offering, and you guys are going to be... He divided it all. So when they come out of Babylon, did that matter to them? The people coming out of Babylon, they want to know, where do I fit in, in this concept that, that God developed? Well, David, before he ever got to, to build any of it, he laid it all out for him. He laid it all out. Because it mattered to David. It mattered to David that everybody knew their place in, in, the, in the family of God. Is it different today? Well, look, we're all of, uh, of the Levitical priesthood, really. If we want to look at it, we're all. What was the Levitical priesthood? The Levitical priesthood were the guys whose inheritance was Jesus. What's the body of Christ? What's our inheritance? What is our exceedingly great reward? That's Jesus. If it's something else, if it's a, a heaven, if it's a, um, the mansion, I get into, we're missing the boat. What is Jesus' portion? What is His inheritance? Us. I think He got the short end Amen. of the deal. But if you ask Jesus, you know what He says? For the joy set before me, I endured the cross, despising the shame, and I have seated myself at the right hand of the Father for the love that I had for the chance to be with you. You, individually, not you corporately, you. He said, I endured the shame for the joy set before me. That's how much He prizes us. Man, that's glorious. And our portion, our reward is Him. So we, we find ourselves as the priesthood being an example of the tribe of Levi. What set Levi apart? How did they get set apart? They made a choice to stand for God. Did you know that? So before that, it was the firstborn of the family who was the priest. The priest was the firstborn of the family. But one day, you guys remember, Moses went up on top of this mountain, and on top of the mountain he's talking with God. And remember the whole shining face? You guys remember that story? He's talking to God. He got the Ten Commandments, right? And he's carrying them down. You remember he's carrying them down, the Ten Commandments? And when he carried them down, you remember what everybody was doing? It only took them 40 days to get into trouble, hot water way over their head. They're dancing around a golden calf, right? Moses breaks them. And he says, who built this golden calf? And Aaron, his brother, who was the high priest, said, I don't know. Nobody did it. What happened? I took the gold and I threw it in the fire and bloop, out popped the golden calf. Yeah, they, the, the, the excuses didn't get any better with three, four thousand years of time. I don't know what happened. 
And Moses stood before all the people. He said, man, you guys broke the law according to that stuff. I'm carrying down here. We all got to die. We're dead men. You broke God's law. You broke it. We'll call that the fear of God. And then, Moses said, Who of you, who of you will stand with God? And one family stood. Know who they were? The Levites. And God said, From now on, these people are my priests. How do you become a part of the family of God? Don't you make that same choice? Who will stand? Which of you will follow me, Jesus said. We all get to make that choice, right? We don't make it as a family. But when we make that choice, we become part of the family. Do we all do the same stuff? Some of us are maintenance guys. Some of us are doorkeepers. Some of us are worship guys. Some of us are responsible for the, the sacrifices. Some of us are responsible for different aspects. But we're all part of the body of Christ, right? We can't exist with no thumbs. We can't all be an eye, right? Paul told us that, right? Isn't that the same thing that we're reading here? The divisions had to come. Divisions within the body of Christ that would fulfill different parts of what the body of Christ does. But what's the purpose of it all? What is the purpose of the entire body of Christ? To make His name great, magnified, glorified. That people see Him through you and me. Just like David. I want them all to see God through me.